0: Startup Grind Columbus is a monthly event to educate and inspire entrepreneurs. We actively live Startup Grind's global community values of give first, help others, and make friends. Startup Grind Columbus is made possible by our lead partners, AWH, builders of exceptional digital products that drive business for growth companies, and Rev1 Ventures visit startupgrind.com slash columbus to see a list of upcoming events and to see videos from our past events now onto this month's event podcast all right let's get this started this is startup grind i'm ryan this is uh andrew andrew is gonna andrew is just gonna walk up yes um yeah welcome andrew this is this is already on. I know because it fell on the floor and made a big noise. So yeah, I'm confirming it. Yeah, you can you can talk at any time into it. Excellent. Okay, perfect. So this is a startup grind. We do get together once a month and have a conversation with an entrepreneur investor. Uh, by the way, I took. I just want you to know I took one for the the team. I took the chair that is dirty and I gave you the clean one, <laughs> just so. Just so that you would know how much I care about I, you having I, a good experience, I appreciate doing this. that.
1: Okay. my dry cleaning bill I, appreciates. I, I that.
0: don't, I don't know what it is, but yours is clean. Ish. So we're off to okay. Next time, I will bring some, some scrub stuff. I don't know what you clean upholstery with. The upholstery cleaner. That would
1: that would be it. Yeah. Okay. We, we can brainstorm at the end of this if we have. Right. Time. We can
0: talk about that when well, we run out of other things to talk about around business. Exactly. Right? Um, So I have some people to thank. Rev One—they let us come in here and set up and do this. Uh, There's Ryan Helan from Rev One. So if you don't know anybody at Rev One and you want to talk to them about something, Ryan was good enough to hang around, so um, he'll be the person that you can talk to tonight. The other Alex Brown is in the back with Dickinson Wright, standing there looking like an attorney because he is one. Um, So if you would need to talk to somebody about that sort of thing, talk to Alex. Brian and Charles are over here in the corner from Get Devs. Um, they have developers in, in the Philippines that you can engage with. So if you think that um, you would know what people from that have developers in the Philippines look like, you're right. They look like those two guys. Uh, my firm, AWH, we're a digital product company. We help clients build software products. Heartland Bank and GBQ are also sponsors. So... Uh, without further ado, let's get this started. And Andrew, I'm going to start asking you questions. Perfect. So you—you you know, Stuart, by the way. Yeah. So Stuart did this um, probably 18 months ago, um, maybe longer than that. Seems like time's flying these days. Um, and um, he, his com- to company, took 25 years to exit. Yours only took 15.
1: It was lightning fast. Right. I mean, so rock, do you, rocket ship. Do you,
0: right. So do you feel some sense of accomplishment in, in this competitive situation between you and Stuart?
1: No, you know, not, not particularly. His story's really good. I mean, I'd like to listen to that one in comparison to mine. It was pretty good. Yeah, I know. I have to be honest. It's going to be hard to compete with that. Yeah.
0: And he's, um, he's funnier now, though. When we, when we did it, he was very serious the whole time. He was, he was very serious the whole time. What's that? He, he, right, he was saying how funny you are.
1: Man, I have all sorts of expectations right. that have
0: been set up for me. So I pitched this as your bio is the funniest bio ever. Why, why did, did people read his bio? Did you think it was funny? Yeah, it was pretty cool, right? So wh- why, why do that? Why not just be normal and write a normal bio? And why do you not like things written in the third person about you? Does anyone here have a
1: biographer? I don't either. So I always find it really awkward. I thought you were going to say that you did. No, no, I don't. I don't have a biographer. Um, Nowhere near important enough. Um, So I, I was reading a bio of a speaker probably three months ago. I was going to another event. I just—I was reading it, and I'm like, this guy wrote this about himself, and it just sounded so weird, like touting all this incredible accomplishments. I have—I literally have no idea if any of my accomplishments come near any of your accomplishments as far as impressiveness. I mean, quite honestly, there are there are mountains you're climbing right now that probably put my accomplishments to shame. So I just thought I'd write about. Real feelings about being an entrepreneur and what I've been through. I mean, I I, I can't possibly Tout my own accomplishments because I just have nothing to compare them against It was incredibly refreshing
0: um, And I was thoroughly entertained Yeah, when just, when it came over because he actually sent me a third-person normal one first And then and then that he, our marketing department wrote Right from yeah. the marketing department and then yeah. he was like do you are you okay with us? I was like yeah, it was fine. He was like what do you think about this one? And then I was like, we totally, have to go with, we totally have to go with the one that we ended up
1: using. No, because I sent the one that the marketing people use on our website, and then I reread this other guy's that I hated so much. And I'm like, it sounds like that one I hated. And I'm like, I, I just can't with a straight face put a bio out there that people know that I wrote about myself talking about all these great accomplishments. I just couldn't do it. Uh,
0: I, am, I am awesome. There's no doubt about it. Just look at the bio. Which is... <laughs> So you, you talk about some things in the bio that are funny, but they're also true. That's probably yeah, why they're funny. All, all facts. Right. Um, what, how would you encapsulate your experience being a founder, a team of Dynamics, growing the company in, in, in like 20 words or less? What is the essence of that and the essence of what you captured in the bio?
1: I think that, um, you know, we survived our major mistakes and worked hard enough to get over them. Um, And we just survived furiously until we actually had something that people wanted to buy at scale. And that's the difference. What were some of the big mistakes that you made that you had to survive? Oh, I mean, investing way too much time in deals that were never going to be deals, investing way too much time in customers in, like that were Like in sales opportunities? Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, investing way too much time in customers that were never going to be lucrative or profitable and buy more. I think we made hiring mistakes. Um, I, I think that uh, we put a premium early on on experience when we should have been putting a premium on intellect and drive. Uh, I mean, we we probably made every mistake everyone in this room has ever made, probably cubed. So how
0: did you survive those? Because for many companies, even making one of those mistakes Mm -hmm.
1: would be a death sentence, right? Yeah, I think, um, well, I know that we worked harder. I think we, tried, we made up for a lot by just outworking our comp- competition and being the last people who left this place on a very regular basis. You know, There weren't too many cars when we got here, and there were no cars when we left. And so just sheer brute force works sometimes. But I will say I, I also think that people hate to hear this. You know, Anyone who writes a business book says, I've got it figured out. Luck plays a part. I saw a lot of really great businesses that didn't make it. Right? And it was it was by no fault of the entrepreneur or the product. They just didn't get that break. I mean, it's like anything, like being a musician or an actor, right? Um, and we got a couple big breaks and a couple clients who believed in us. Now, I think there were reasons. I think we positioned ourselves to be lucky. But um, we certainly got a couple big breaks early on that we were able to ride into other things. So, I mean, I wish there was something really magical that I could tell you. About that, but I do believe that that has a has a role.
0: Yeah, I think there's um, um, NPR has a pod- podcast, How I Built This, that Guy Raz does, mm-hmm. and one of the questions he always asks everybody at the end is how much of the, of the success was your skill and, and your ability, and how much of it was luck. Mm-hmm. And the ones that that I think are honest say, look. We were smart, we were capable, we made some good decisions, but we also got lucky as shit along the way that this could ever have become what it became.
1: Yeah, I, I can pinpoint two watershed moments that I think made us um, early on and it gave us the runway to fail and struggle for a couple of years until we really figured out what we were going to be. The first was uh, a deal with Cardinal Health and they didn't pay us anything. And we spent 80% of our time there. But it was something, in this market anyway, we could say Cardinal Health's a customer. And that created credibility. And then I'll never forget, I, I think we were making total per month from Cardinal Health across like five departments, like 1200 bucks a month. It was terrible. It was terrible. <laughs> but we knew it wouldn't be, well, we hoped it wouldn't be forever. Um, And I'll never forget, I walked into a company called Frontstep, which used to be SciMix, It was an old ERP system. And I had become friends with their VP of professional services. And we wanted, I was pitching that they use us to manage all their implementations. And I walked in there with a contract, and I thought to myself, okay, I have a good relationship with the guy. vetted this with his consultants. There's no way in hell that he is going to sign this for this much money every month. No way in hell. And I walked out half an hour later with a signed contract and I sat in the car for a second. I'm like, holy shit, I can p- actually pay myself. And this means we have runway to do some things because no one was lending money. I mean, Rev1 wouldn't give us, or Tech Columbus wouldn't give us money. Nobody would give us money. Nobody. No matter how good. I mean, I, I bet if I'd say, hey, you can have it for free. Like, no, no, no thanks. <laughs> no, nope, well, we'll pass. You know? Mm, no. It looks, looks nice, though. Good luck. We're good. Yeah. Yeah, we got that forever. So um, we learned. We learned really quickly. Don't undervalue what we have because people will pay more than what you think it's worth for it, right? Especially if you have a good relationship and you're well aligned with their needs. Um, And then just focus on revenue, and just obsessively focus on revenue. I mean, revenue cures all. It's amazing who wants to give you money when you're profitable and have revenue. So That'll, that'll shut them up.
0: Yeah. Well, and then all of a sudden they do want to you know, yeah, participate. And then you don't need them. Right, exactly. So then that puts you in a really, really nice position yeah. from lots of perspectives. So many entrepreneurs, I don't think, look at starting a company as they have to be the first best salesperson at the company and to be that focused on on revenue. I mean, everybody knows that you have to go out and sell, right, and you have mm-hmm. to make money. But many entrepreneurs, especially if they're technical founders or if they're product people, right, they don't really give credence and, and proper value to that revenue generation piece. Mm-hmm. Did you start out that way, sort of knowing and taking the sales piece that seriously, or did you grow into it, and then at some point realize, holy shit, we're not going to get outside money, so if we don't sell this thing, we're done.
1: I mean, we realized pretty quickly that if we didn't sell anything because we had no funding, that we were going to be dead. I mean, the, there was, was mathematically impossible that we weren't, and neither of us were independently wealthy, um, and neither of us had... Trust funds, or parents who could provide trust funds, all those sources of income that you see uh, we didn 't have those um, and so we had been living off of savings and ended up being two years before we started getting paid and so it it was pretty clear that we needed to generate sales and so were you good at it to start? No pathetic I mean, did you, how did you get good other than you called on your friends and, and forced them to sign contracts? <laughs> Um, You know, I think reading, right, reading a lot of sales books, um, my, my partner and I were both very good students, so we studied a lot, even in the business, and we were fortunate that we weren't the same, so he was very technical, and I was technical, but ended up focusing on implementation, support, sales, marketing, so we really divided and conquered on that, so that was really helpful. I think that dynamic worked well at that stage. Um, but you know it was figuring out after you've wasted I mean mostly we figured it out through failure and education so you'd read something or talk to somebody and they'd tell you okay at every step of the sale ask if they have the power to make the decision for what's next um, at every step of the sale ask if there's any concerns at every step of the sale figure out if they still have budget and get proof that budget exists even if it's uncomfortable right you learn that but then you think, oh, no, I'm really good friends with Kelly. She'd never lead me astray. And then I've wasted 200 hours and six months. And Kelly's like, um, Jimmy uh, left the job, and so we don't have a deal. I'm like, who's Jimmy? Like, who the, who the hell's Jimmy? Oh, Jimmy's with my boss who signs everything. I'm like, God damn it. So you learn. You fail. And then you're like, oh, everything I read and everything everybody smart who told me was right. That's how it worked. So you know, I, you're, I hope you weren't looking for, man, well, I really studied. I just figured it out because I'm brilliant. Now I, I wasted so much time.
0: Well, that's a, that's a good segue because yeah. you, you, well, at one time you were presumably brilliant because you started out as a management consultant.
1: No, well, I, I tell people this. I was smarter and knew more at 22 than I do now by a long shot. I mean, I, I know so little now and I feel so much dumber than everyone else. It's a total switch from when I left college. Oh man, I knew everything. I, mean, I was, you should, I was, I was brilliant. I would have told, I would, I would m- me back then would have told you all about it.
0: So, so why leave the consulting gig, in? and did that prepare you at all for for going down this entrepreneurial path? Yes, actually,
1: or w- I, it, was it a huge mistake. No, it was it was great because what. I learned working for a very good consultancy, a project consultant, not a, not a body shop consulting firm, a project consulting firm, was the value of having smart people around you was surrounded by brilliant people, the value of hard work, right? how to work as a team. It was absolutely brilliant. Um, and then... If you run or work in a project firm, you will work your ass off. Yes, you work your ass off. But at that age... Who cares? Like you have unlimited well, and energy. And you were also brilliant. So <laughs> Yeah, that's right. That's right. I could figure anything out. That's right. Um, and I think the opportunity, um, you know, our, our big opportunity to start this business was really given to us. And I'll explain that. It was 2001. We were working um, for Arthur Anderson Business Consulting in the Columbus office, Advanced Technology Group. And uh, I was on a project in Indianapolis. And business partner was on another project and we all got called back to the office and they said, Hey, we're shutting down the Columbus office. So you no longer have jobs. And, uh, he said, okay. And he, I think he had an opportunity in another city and I had an opportunity in another city, but you know, he had kind of started this, this prototype of the product and we'd been kind of tinkering with it, working on it. Like, oh, this is pretty neat. We had some big problems we were solving for the projects we were on. And it was a really good idea. And he's like, Hey, check this thing out. I'm like, okay, that's neat. And he said, okay. So now we're presented with an interesting opportunity. We can try to make a go of this or try to go get jobs in other cities and we decided let's make a go of it. I mean, honestly, again, you know, if you're expecting a real story of entrepreneurial bravery, you're not about to hear one. Um, I literally looked at it and said to myself, what is the downside of doing this, okay? The worst case scenario is I have to sell my car um, and my parents had an extra car which was nicer than mine. And not I, the not the red Jetta. No, I let that one go sadly. Okay. Um long long ago. But um then the second worst part of the scenario is I had to move back home, which was much nicer than my apartment had free utilities and food and way better cable. I mean they had every channel. So I thought to myself, so the absolute worst case scenario is not that bad. I mean, I have massive respect for entrepreneurs who have families and you know risk their savings and their kids' college education funds to, to do this stuff. I mean, that's unbelievable to me that somebody could do that. And that that just wasn't us. I mean, I, <laughs> we were young, you know? So it was
0: a good point in life for you yeah. guys to
1: take a run at this. Absolutely. Right? I mean, it was... Um the, the, the stars sort of aligned yep. to say, hey, you know, we're, we're the downside is minimal. Yeah, and I and actually looking back on it, I'm glad no one gave us money. I think we would have blown it all. I think we would have wasted every dime. It took us five years to figure out what we were going to be when we grew up. And uh, I also think that it taught us really how to hustle and how to sell. And I think if you're given a lot of money, sometimes you don't learn the fundamentals of a business and you might miss on some of the... Uh, opportunities that are really where you're going to see your growth. I mean, don't get me wrong. I would have taken the money all day. I didn't know that we would have wasted it and blown it all until after the fact. I know Ryan's sitting like, oh, my God, I just put money into these startups. Oh, my God. (laughs) Is this really what's going through their head? Oh, (laughs) jeez. You know? Um, Not everyone's that way. That was just my personal experience. I've talked to some young entrepreneurs who have all of it figured out. Smarter than I was when I was 22. I've met some of them. So what is Team Dynamics? What problem do you solve? <laughs> sure. For whom? Okay, so Team Dynamics is a tool set that helps students, faculty, and staff, and universities get an answer to any question. And if they can't get an answer, someone will help them. That's as simple as I can make it. It's a lot more nuanced than that. But kids go to school, and students go to school. You don't know where to go for anything. You have trouble with your bring your own device technology, you have no idea how to get it fixed. We're this enormous knowledge base that provides all of those answers. And then if you run into a roadblock, you can say, I need to request help here. And we make sure that that, that gets to the right group, the right person. Now, why is that important? Why does that matter? Because student retention starts day one. And student retention is a massively expensive problem. It costs four times as much to recruit a new student as it does to keep one paying tuition. And schools are absolutely hurting for students. So anything a school can do to make that experience easy and make sure that these students have a good, good experience and don't have a barrier to getting to class or a barrier to figuring out where their balance is and from a financial aid standpoint matters. The other side of it is, is universities are struggling for, for resources, cash and people. So our tool routes all this stuff to the right teams. The balls don't get dropped. It's a lot more efficient. So we're solving a pretty significant problem in higher education.
0: By definition of the fact that you've grown, succeeded, mm-hmm. and have solved this problem for many, uh, many clients at this point, you, you, we, we could probably say that you're good at product. You've built a, a product that solves a problem and that your customers value. Why do you think that's the case? Why do you think you guys have been good at product? Once you sort of figured out what the true north was, how did, how did you successfully build a product that solved the problem for them?
1: So product for us evolved. Uh, early on, it was being very nimble to meet clients' needs who would pay for stuff. Right? Oh, yeah, we can do that. We signed this contract. If we get that done, oh, yeah, okay, great. We'll get that done. So we used product as a sales weapon that our competitors couldn't, but yet we had to balance that with continuing to make progress against the vision and strategy. So at that time in our lives, being, being nimble was really powerful, right? Now we have a large enough customer base that we get you know, hundreds of enhancement requests a month. So the model has evolved quite a bit. And so we now apply a lot more science to it. Is, is anyone here familiar with or certified in pragmatic marketing? Does anyone know what that is? Okay, if you're in product, look it up. It's, it is the most powerful framework that we've found for managing product. And basically, what we do is we determine what the strategy is, where we think we have the ability to grow, Okay. So that's sort of forward-looking. Our clients aren't necessarily asking for it. The market may not be asking for it, but we see it as a real growth opportunity. So getting into a new space, adding capabilities that will beat expectations. You know, they, they, have you ever seen a grid that says on the X, it's level expectation. I expect this to be here. I don't, I, I don't expect this to be here. And then there's value, you know. Meh, too. That's unbelievable the ultimate place to be is unexpected and unbelievable, because then you're differentiated. So we keep an eye there, right? But where we focus is on collecting what we call market evidence. So market evidence is a fancy way of saying, how many times has somebody requested the same thing? And then we look at each enhancement and we have clients rate it and say, okay, what percentage of your users experience this problem? How often do they experience? How crippling is it? And we have a mathematical model that will help us kind of calculate and generate what could be the best enhancement. So we, we look at that, and that's usually focused on retention. So existing clients see less of the road ahead. They're not as interested in the future. They just want the product to be better. So we have 97.6% retention, which is really good. And we have a 69 um, a sixty nine on the uh, uh, it 's not CSat the uh, what 's the other one yeah MPs so we have to focus on that because we have a an insulated market, they all talk, so we we essentially have a portfolio where we say we 're going to dedicate x percent of our resources on existing client retention, so we 'll take from that pool of market evidence, the highest levels of market evidence. We'll look at the metrics, and if it happens to align with strategy, those things shoot to the top because we're killing two birds with one stone. So we will constantly balance, and one release will focus more on strategy where the customers don't get as much. They don't know it, but they will a couple releases out because we're laying tracks, and then we'll dribble in some things where they've really been asking for it, and that's really worked for us. So um, we moved from total art and, and nimble, product management to a much more structured framework. And what, what it has resulted in, which is I, I think the best outcome you can, you can expect from product at a certain size, is that when you show your product roadmap, this is what I told people, I, I said, you know, I, I want to say I'm going to get up here and you're all going to applaud and cheer when you see this product roadmap, but I know that's not going to happen. What happens? is they will see a couple things on there that they like. They're like, oh my gosh, I really needed that. And then the very next thing that goes through their head is, where's all of my other shit? That's what they think. And then you get a lineup. Hey, where's my this or that? Where's my this or that? And the best outcome for product strategy and management is that every release, clients get a handful of things they really wanted. But we communicate with them why the other things were more important than their requests. And at least they understand why we made that decision. So we never want, we never want to have a major feature release and not be able to articulate to a client why it was so important to the, the market or the business. And I think we've largely accomplished that. It's taken two years to get there, but I think we've largely accomplished that. And that's been a, that's been a major shift for us. And our, our satisfaction pro- with well, our product's never been higher. On the surveys and polls, we've we've never had better satisfaction around product.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. It's human nature to look at something and to um, not appreciate what's there, but to desire what isn't there, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's sort of the way mm-hmm. we're fundamentally wired. Yeah. Um, so th- let's talk about the exit.
1: Mm-hmm. So, well, let me add one other thing. Yeah, go ahead. I, I will say in every release cycle those of you developing product, we always leave wiggle room for just good ideas or things that the engineering team wants to work on. So you know, like, never max the team out? Never. Of- no. We'll always leave. And, and my my old business partner had come up with that. It's called Drip List. And so it's, hey, there's always some bandwidth if a really good idea comes through or just to give people the ability to do something they want to. So we, we, we find that sometimes engineers, they they're okay with doing you know, what's been placed in front of them, but they always want some creativity. So we allow that. Say, hey, what do you think is most important? Take some time and do it. Yeah, m- good engineers
0: just don't want the requirements, right, slid into the door mm-hmm. and, you know, for yeah. wait for the code to come back, right? They would like some ownership and ability to sort of, you know, have some input on mm-hmm. how it works and what's there, et cetera. So... Was it, was it the plan to sort of go for a while and run for a while before exiting? Did you hope to exit sooner w- w- where it ended up? Was that fine? W- what were your pr- thoughts on exit, or would you just have continued to run the business in perpetuity if that never
1: had presented itself? Um, I would have preferred to exit in three years at an infinite multiple of what we got. That would have been my, that would have been my if I could rewrite it, i mean I, I probably would have i wouldn't have it wouldn't have hurt if it was a hundred billion dollars right that well, would have, that would have been well, okay. you,
0: you seem a, you seem a little old and, and beaten down at this point, so <laughs> it probably would have been
1: worth your dear um, bone so you know I think you're always thinking about exit in some form right or the financial the financial uh, drivers behind your business for you personally or you know, how you make it bigger. I think you're always, we're always targeting exit. But it was almost as if we took the pulse of the M&A market on a, I don't know, every 18 months to see, okay, where do we think we'd land from a valuation standpoint? And there's an equation, it's not that formal, where you sit there and say, okay, I have all of my risk in this business, majority of it the vast majority of your wealth is tied up in a, in one business. So you say, okay, um, what are the risks in the market? It's part of the, part of the factors in. Then you look at what do we think we could get out of it and what kind of difference does that make to your, your life? From now, forever, right? And there's a point at which the valuations get high enough where you look at it and you say, okay, if we exit now, this changes our lives forever, and it mitigates our risk. And there is a crossing of those two lines. And at that point, it becomes a good idea to exit. For entrepreneurs who aren't being driven by investors, that, that changes the equation. That was not my experience. And by the way, just so everyone's clear, we are a B2B software platform. I know absolutely nothing about B2C. c Zero. I mean, I probably know less than somebody who just reads the internet about B2C software. I honestly, like, seriously take everything I say with, I mean, maybe ignore everything I say when it comes to B2C. I I just have no clue. And I would be remiss if I left you thinking that I did. I I could really damage your business. (laughs) So just keep that in mind. Did
0: you guys ever take any outside money pre-exit? We did. Um... Why did you do that, and why? From, yeah, and from whom what are, what
1: are some of the details are on that? <laughs> okay? So again, we're not why are you laughing because it's it's not that glamorous. Um, we needed when we started two servers. at a time, an iron was really expensive. it was fifteen grand, and we didn't have any money, so we borrowed half of it from my business partner's parents and then paid them back, and then my stepmother. Uh, who I'd grown up with uh, was not a blood relative and they had this thing called the Ohio investment tax credit. If anyone remembers this absolutely wonderful thing that I wish still existed, um, you put money in and you get a tax credit for the whole amount that you invested. It just comes off your state taxes. You, You lose nothing. It's a tax credit. It's ridiculous. So she did that and uh no wonder it doesn't exist anymore yeah no she uh when she and when we exited she had gotten diluted and all this stuff and she would ask me every once in a while and what it was going to be worth and um it was funny at certain points in our life cycle I thought god I would take like a case of really good beer and just like the ability to walk out the door and never come back like that's how much I thought it was worth at certain times I'm like christ is terrible and i was most worried about her getting her money back i thought man i would feel terrible if she didn't get her money back and my hope for a long time was like if i just make enough to pay her back i would be okay with that you know and she made 12 times her money after dilution that was a really great day that was probably the best part of that exit for me yeah it was great yeah so no other money than that though fifteen thousand dollars
0: yeah that's awesome so the, the 15 years into it, the lines cross, it makes sense. How does it go down? Do you, are, you, are you guys driving the process? Or is somebody else sort of pursuing you guys and driving the process? Um,
1: you, you get offers all the time. I mean, you get emails and phone calls a couple times a week. And finally somebody got through and said, okay, let's, ha- let's listen. Let's just listen. And we'd engaged a, a, a banker. Uh, group called Quorum Group, who I wish we, I, in hindsight, I wish we'd actually worked with. We didn't end up doing it, but I think that we would have had an even better outcome with them. Um, and that's a whole other subject of paying for great professional advice. Um, but this group approached us. The valuation they wanted to pay made a difference. I said, hmm, okay. And then we were approached... In the 10th hour, I'd say, by a private equity fund, two private equity funds who said, hey, we can do better. He said, okay. Well, if you can do better, that sounds good, you know, um, for a majority deal. And we went through that process, and it, it worked out. And then we had a, a phenomenal attorney who uh, looked at us and said, I think you can get more money. And we said, really? He said, yeah, I think you can get more money. And he goes, do you want me to try? He said, sure. And he got us another million dollars. <laughs> but in hindsight, you're like, how much more could we have gotten? Right. Jesus, if like in one conversation they're like, sure, that's fine, we'll give you right. another million, no problem. Could it have been two or three or? What? Yeah, I mean, what was what the, the up, hell? What was the upper end? I mean, it it was. Uh, I don't. I, I don't know what it could have been, but it was fine. I mean, regardless, we have to look back and say, okay, at the time, knowing what we know, was it the right move? And I absolutely think it was. And then, you know, what was nice was that they gave us the ability to reinvest. So I had the ability to say okay I've taken my risk off the table and then I can choose how much risk to put back in and I decided to invest back in with those private equity funds and mostly because I wanted to understand how it worked because you get to see different things when you're a class A investor one thing that I'm a real I'm very zealous about is getting class A shares because of the preference and that way I got to see everything that the P.E. fund saw. I got to be part of those meetings and communications and learn how those money machines work, which is pretty staggering that what they do is even possible. I mean, legally, the way they structure things. I mean, it, you have so much preference, it's absolutely obscene. And it's great to be on that side of it. So um, yeah, I reinvested in the deal, and I wish I'd put more in. But you never, I mean, I, my perspective was, okay, I I don't want to put so much in that if I lose it all, I'm sobbing, like what an idiot, but I want to have enough in that it's meaningful. So I had to strike that balance and in hindsight, it was way too low.
0: Well, you're still, you're still there. Yeah. So from an operating perspective, it's seemingly gone well since Mm -hmm. the, since the acquisition too. True. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. No.
1: Do you despise these people and you're just there because you like your chair? No, I, I don't like my chair. It's a piece of garbage. I don't even sit in it. Um, I stand all the time. I mean, it's it's. I, we can probably get you a new chair. No, I I have given up on the chair. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, I've tried to escape a couple of times, and uh, what's interesting is I, I had to come up with a I had to come up with a, a decision making model that I run through every six months as to whether I stay or go. And the model for me was, okay, I don't have to be here. Um, So do I feel like what we're doing is important? That's one check. Do I like the people I work with? Am I having fun a lot more than I'm not having fun? Am I learning a lot from the people around me? So am I learning things that are going to be beneficial into the next step, whatever I do next? right? If I'm learning something significant, having fun, I like the people there. And if there's a lot of financial upside, if all of those things hold, I stay. Um, and so that's been my model. And we sold again in November to another bigger private equity fund. So now I'm learning about that process. And you, know, you get an equity package to stay. Um, and you have to assess. Hey, is you know, is this worth it? What what are they proposing? You know, what kind of fun could we have? And you know, what can I learn on their dime so I don't screw it up on my own dime? I mean, that's just, that might sound bad, but that's you know part of it. So so far, it's been been really good, and I'm surrounded by a, a group of incredibly smart people. I mean, just br- brutally smart.
0: So, and you told me when we we. Um, spoke um, a month or so ago that that you're now sort of on the other side of the table. you guys are now talking to other companies about mm-hmm. acquiring and 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 sort of growing through acquisition and that 's been um, an exciting process for you and interesting it sounded like, but also surprising in some ways in in that some companies that you talk to and some founders you talk to around valuations just don't seem to be living in reality or don't understand how the
1: process works it's absolutely jaw-dropping um, so I I am staying because we're they were working to acquire three to five businesses in the next 18 to 24 months and I know I've been through the sell side a couple times one that we didn't end up doing and two that we did so I feel really comfortable with the sell side I'd like to be on the buy side a couple times too um, and you know, we were talking to a company, great strategic fit, a, a newer business, and they were doing, uh, I think 850,000 in recurring revenue. And I said, okay, this is great. We'd like to buy you. I would, you know, what's a number that would make you feel good when you go home and sleep at night? He said 30 million bucks. I said, that'd make me nope. feel, yeah. That'd make me I'm feel like, good hey. too. Like, Hey, can I get in on that? I mean, I'll invest if that's what you're thinking you're going to get out of this thing, but not from us. Um, So we've had some of that, and the challenge in the ed tech space, too, is there's a lot of young companies that are doing really cool things, and they don't want to sell, and I can't blame them because they haven't hit their stride. You know, it's premature for a lot of these organizations. So right now, there's a handful in the pipeline we're looking to buy, but there's a couple more we're trying to figure out, like, hey, we don't want to buy them now because they're really not ready for it. Um, So do we partner with them? Do we, you know merge somehow. We're trying to figure out a couple of these different ways out because valuation expectations are crazy. Talk to another one today who we'd met with that we like. They're doing four and a half million in revenue and they want $65 million for their business. So, well, okay. Um, That's good if they want that, but it's one of those things that's sometimes hard to pay when you're using a financial model to figure out what a company's worth. So, you know, it's it's like, I mean, it's selling, but it's different. You're trying to sell these smaller companies, you know, that it's a great idea to join you and that they're going to get more creative value in the stock that they might get, and that's going to be worth, it's going to minimize their risk. They're going to maybe get more upside, you know, on the second turn. Um, so it's it's challenging for certain, but fun.
0: Yeah, it, it's, um, it's, it's fascinating to be on the other side of the table, yeah. right? And, and to be able to have empathy and be able to relate to the same, um, anxiousness that you felt right when you were going through on, um, on, on the sales side, right? Mm-hmm. It is, um, it gives you relatability at least to the position that they're in.
1: Yeah, I can absolutely relate to where they are. And I think that I, I don't know if that's the only reason they keep me around, but I think it's one of them because I can actually talk to these entrepreneurs and say, Hey, listen, I've been there let me let me ask a couple of questions. Let me tell you what my story, and yeah, you're they prob- say, "Oh my gosh, that's exactly what we're going through." Well, you're right. You're probably closer to having gone through
0: that than they than they are, right? So mm-hmm. you're then presumably going to be better at making a deal happen mm-hmm. than they would be, given the fact that the PE guys have probably been out of the the fray and operating business for a while.
1: No, they've they've never been in. Okay, ever. That's, yeah, that makes it even worse. They've all been MBAs and. Behind spreadsheets and working at equity funds, which isn't a bad thing. That's a career, but they don't have any operators. Right. They're, they're not operators.
0: Understanding building models, understanding yeah. financial models, right. and the numbers. They're really good behind at it. business, right? That, there, that certainly yeah. is an expertise. Mm-hmm. We could debate whether that expertise adds much value, mm-hmm. right, into the economy and into an ecosystem or mm-hmm. not. Um, but it's certainly an expertise.
1: Yeah, no, that they're very good at what they do. But as far as relatability and being able to sit down with an entrepreneur and understand what they're going through mentally. They don't have that in many cases. I mean, not all, there are some PE funds that have entrepreneurs who have been part a part of them, but that just hasn't been my experience.
0: So what's, I'm, I'm assuming the experience building team dynamics in Columbus has been overall positive and good. Mm-hmm. And you've been able to find skilled people that have been able to be effective product builders, et cetera. Um, what, and you've sort of you've sort of laid low. You've not been a celebrity founder. You you've not grabbed a microphone every chance that you you've had to grab one and to tell the team dynamic story. Um, so what's your experience been in Columbus and how would you sort of and and I know you have lots of colleagues around the country that you talk to now and 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 sort of talk about the business building experience with How would you compare it to what you've heard from other places?
1: You know, I I don't know that I've heard as much about the comparison other places. I mean, other than friends who have been in Silicon Valley, which it's just a a different world as far as funding levels and I was talking earlier what people consider to be a startup. I was telling the story. My buddy's like, "Hey, I've gone from McKinsey to a startup." Said, "Okay, tell me about that." Yeah, we just got two hundred and fifty million in funding. We're really trying to make a go of it. He's like they couldn't quite they couldn't quite pay me what I made at McKinsey, and this guy was making like 1.2 million bucks. I'm like, geez, Bill. I'm like, that's tough, man. You must be really suffering. I mean, it's just got to be horrible, you know. Good luck. But that's just not the dynamic, you know. He'll be back at his parents' house <laughs> because they have more cable. <laughs> I think he'll be fine. <laughs> but uh, you know, I think I think in Columbus, early on, we networked a lot and did lots of events. Um, trying to find our way, but uh, to be honest with you, a couple things came to pass. Um, number one, we realized our market wasn't going to be through networking. The people we were networking with at a lot of these types of events were not pipes to revenue. right? We, we, it just wasn't going to happen, so we needed to focus our energy on revenue. Now, we would focus on some of these events for hiring, You know, try to network so at least somebody knew who we were. The other thing that was really critical was that when we were competing in business-to-business software, we were competing with much larger companies, okay? We, the last thing we wanted them to know was how small we were. So we kept a low profile. I didn't want to be in a newspaper. We didn't want to have any, any, I mean, journalists will write all sorts of crap about your business Right, like oh, it's a three three person company really killing it, and then someone in, is competing with us says um, that company you're thinking about over us has three people. That's an anti revenue strategy to have a high profile as a B two B startup entrepreneur. It's I will say it again, that is an anti revenue strategy. Right, until you have clients who can vouch for you enough of them, it is a bad strategy. I mean, it, so. We just didn't do it. I mean, we didn't want anyone to know. I mean, our website didn't talk about how big we were. I mean, we, it was the last thing we wanted anyone to know. I mean, we were really evasive. When someone says, how big are you? Well, you know, I mean. What metric are you using? <laughs> we'd use any metric that made us look as big as possible. You know, like we're lines of code and they'd be like no one's ever... Told us that when we've asked how big you are, like ten million lines of code, like they're like, oh, that guy's that guy's challenged. We'll just let that one slide.
0: Back to the contract. Um, it, as you think about other um, things, how long do you think you'll be at the company now? And what, what's next for you? What, what's what, what do you what do you do after? Another bit at team dynamics What what's going to interest you
1: moving forward? I, I don't have that fully formulated to be 100% honest. Um, I think about it a lot my wife wants me to get fired terribly bad. She asks me every time we come home from a big meeting or a board meeting did, did you be, get fired? If you, did you do bad enough she's to like, get did fired like Did you get fired? And I said no I didn't get fired and she's like well bad day. She's like, I would hope that you know, it would just make it easier if you got fired. I'm like, I don't want to get fired. Like, I would like to leave on my own, of my with my own volition. You know, I, I want to be my choice. So she struggles with that a little bit. I'm kind of surprised she doesn't put drugs in my bag, and then call HR when I get to work. I'm like, kind of. I'm kind of thinking about getting a dog just to smell my bag when I leave to go to work every day. Because I think that. I mean, she might get there. Sounds like she's on a fast track. She might be. I don't know. I, mean, I haven't... I, I'm not sus- that suspicious yet, but...
0: No, not that suspicious. No. no. I haven't bought the dog. dog. I haven't even started
1: suspicious. looking at what it takes to get a dog like that.
0: Right.
1: Not yet. Honey, but, we just adopted a four-year-old <laughs> a, German but Shepherd. But don't touch her. She's working. <laughs> no,
0: she can never be pet. <laughs> yeah, just, shh, don't,
1: don't, she's got to rest her nose. Just, don't you know? Um, so I think... I think what's next... Um, nothing for a little bit. I've made a commitment, I've made a commitment to family that I'm going to do nothing for a period of time and travel and do some things we've wanted to do. But after that, I will either get back into a software, you know, running a software company, growing a software company, probably funded, you know, maybe a yeah, I I <laughs> I love, I, you know, I would never trade in the startup experience, but having no customers and no money, if I can avoid it, I will. I would rather have a company that had every single customer wanting to kill them than have one that has no customers. I can try to change those relationships. I can't, you know, you know create customers out of thin air and much rather start with something. So, um, and again, that might be anti-entrepreneurial. I might not, never get invited back. Ryan's like, never get him back
2: here, ever.
1: And Gravis is not allowed in the building. <laughs> yeah, acquiring customers is hard. Yeah, it's really hard. And it takes – I mean, it, it, it's – I have so much respect for anyone who goes through that and survives it. I mean, it's
0: – Especially in the B2B space. You no, know, it's crazy. Right?
1: Because there is no, there is no easy path. There's no easy button. No. Right? There's, and now there's so much regulation – you know, you you have to be SOC two compliant. You have to meet the NIST infrastructure standards. I mean, it's it's hard to be a cloud software company. I would be nothing, and I would be nothing but a recurring revenue software company ever. Recurring revenue is crack. I mean, it it's amazing what happens when you start accumulating this stuff. You know, I think Einstein said the most impressive thing was compound interest. He didn't understand recurring revenue. Your eyes are like bugging out right I now. I am. I am. Yeah, I, it's like you. It's amazing what happens when you have recurring revenue. I mean, if I were focusing on it, I would try to get rid of every single cost to the customer, professional service fees, any of that, and turn it all into recurring revenue. Even if I made 25 percent less year one, if it was recurring, if I could make 100,000, where 50 of it was single, single, uh, a single billing or 75K recurring, I'd do 75K recurring all day. I'd probably even do 60, 52. I'd do 52,000 probably.
0: If, if we sit here longer, the number is going to keep going down. I, I'd
1: do 10. I'd do 10,000. That's <laughs> no, probably not just, that low. Just so it I'd, I'd pay you. I'd actually give $5 away.
0: I think they call that, fr- well, close to freemium. <laughs> yeah, and we've, sort right. of not, we've now proven that freemium doesn't really work. Right, is a go-to-market strategy has that been proven? I think so. Okay,
1: yeah. See, I don't even know. In,
0: in most cases, Slack's probably the one that's reasonably, you know, hmm. used it to, you know, great success now. Yeah. But if you look at like Evernote, right, they convert like less than one yeah. percent of their users because the free product meets most people's needs. Yeah. Right? So we've tried giving product away to acquire customers to then make a business financially successful. By and large, freemium yeah. has proven not to really work out so well, yeah. shockingly, that if you give a good enough product away, people won't pay for you know other shit.
1: Well, the other thing I've, we found, too, is that, uh, honestly, I've found it pretty consistently, entrepreneurs undervalue what they're doing. I mean... I, it, well, that's because all, all of the the flaws, right, and all of the...
0: The, the wounds and warts we have as part of it, right, mm-hmm. that we don't think
1: that what we're doing is as good as mm-hmm. it is or that we're not solving the problem at a valuable mm-hmm. enough level. I, well, right? I think something that we made a mistake with early on wasn't we didn't do enough research as to what these big companies expected to pay for business-to-business software. So we would be really sheepish about, hey, should we charge more, et cetera, like, oh, maybe they won't sign that contract. Once you really realize what a big company is used to spending on software and the amount of bullshit they put up with from companies like Oracle, you start to realize like man, if we're just we can be we can be 80% better than the experience with Oracle without very much effort. Right? I mean very little. And if we charge anywhere, I mean we we couldn't charge what Oracle does, but man, you can charge more. I mean in almost every case.
0: Absolutely. We're, we almost always undervalue and underprice yeah. at the beginning. I get it. And, and then we're scared to death to raise prices mm-hmm. even when we see that there is price, there's price threshold mm-hmm. right, that we can go to. We're almost always afraid mm-hmm. to go to those next, next lo- mm-hmm. those next
1: levels. Yeah, we did, this, we did all those things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to open it up for questions. Darren, who's in the back, has got some mics. So if you want to ask a question, just raise your hand and Darren will get you a mic. So I I may have missed it. You mentioned you had uh, two watershed moments. And the first one was that uh, you had the deal with Cardinal Health. Yes. They didn't pay you anything. Yes. Uh, And I don't know if I caught the second one.
1: The contract I walked out of the building, I thought, I walked in thinking, no way is this guy going to sign this thing. I think it was like $9,000 a month. And we were making $1,250 a month that morning. And we walked out making $10,250 a month. That was the other one. (laughs) That nice. guy's <laughs> okay, still a friend of mine. And I would actually, on that point, um, I think the other thing that we've done really well, part of our success was product, but I think one thing we've done probably better than any other company we know is care for our customers and, and our team members. I, we will bend over backwards for customers, and we will always talk to them when they, they need an ear to listen, and we try to treat them well and respectfully. That has made a huge difference. And I, what I would also say is that I think we made mistakes early on when, you know, we had a, an issue with a colleague, a team member, for example, a question about commission, et cetera. We'd try to go back to the contract and, you know, figure out, like, oh, do we really owe them this? Every single time all day, I will always defer to what's the best benefit of the, the employee. As long as they're honest, good people, I will never use fine print. If it's, if it's unclear, I'm erring on the side of the team member every time. I've seen the power of that. I've seen the damage it can do if you don't. I mean, once you start, you know, when you have a choice for somebody to make about somebody that affects them materially in their lives, when you err on the side that benefits them, they are loyal. It's been massively, massively, massively differentiating for us in the last couple of years. So sorry.
0: Hey, Andrew Charles. Um, so I think of uh, valuations usually as a function of growth rate and revenue and profitability and all those things. But to your point about reoccurring revenue, do you find that reoccurring revenue, if 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 more of your business has a reoccurring revenue than one-time revenue, that that somehow
1: gives you a better valuation? No question. All day. I mean, so in order premium. of magnitude higher. Okay. I mean, it's just staggering. I mean, a professional services firm that, you know, does project work, etc. you know, we were seeing multiples like one and a half times revenue, right? The exact same revenue was five to eight if it were recurring. Yeah. I mean, recurring revenue is just the greatest thing ever in business.
2: So early on, uh, really early on, how did you build that sales pipeline? How, what did you focus on uh, to generate generate those early mm-hmm. sales? Was it uh, leveraging employees, uh, networking? I want to hear. Your thoughts early that. on,
1: it was networking through Arthur Anderson contacts. That's how we got in at Cardinal Health. Um, but then it was. You know, calling, emailing, email campaigns. We did direct mail campaigns. We used Google AdWords, which was new at the time. Um, now there's all sorts of tools to source source leads, but we we basically tried everything we had the bandwidth to do to get leads in the door, and then we would do targeted campaigns as well. And we 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 um, struggled until we decided we were going to focus on higher ed. And that's when our business really took off. So focus made all the difference because then we had a very defined market we were going after. We weren't trying to take all comers. You know, when we were competing with, with or competing in any market. So we'd go into a hospital deal, a healthcare deal. And uh, they'd ask, how many hospitals do you have? We said, none, right? And all of our competitors had multiple hospitals. I mean, that's miserable, right? So we decided higher ed was a place that we should test because we had a handful of them. It turned out we had more than anyone. I mean, we could claim we had as many as anyone else, and there were a bunch of other factors. That's a totally different choosing market focus, something we could spend hours talking about, but I firmly believe in it. Um, But at that point, we then started going directly after these companies with a very targeted message. We specialize in you. We We don't specialize in what we do. We specialize... In You and it just so happens we're doing this thing that we do, but it's built for you made all the difference so I think our Our efficacy with prospecting went way up and our close rates went way up when we did that
0: How soon after you decided to focus on higher ed were you able to then also figure out who your primary?
1: Contact target was in those institutions. I mean we already knew before going into it because we'd been successful selling there. And you know, we were selling to the CIO at that time, or if it was a huge university, a director of certain departments, but we knew, right? So it was, it was. we'd already been there. We'd had some success, so we decided let's focus there. And we, we dipped our toe from the perspective that we kept our main brand, teamdynamics.com, but spun up a separate brand called Team Dynamics, HE, higher ed. So we would direct anyone in higher ed there and Every word, every image was all about the university and college and university space. And they, they had never seen anything like that. Every other competitor was like, we work with Honeywell. We work with General Electric, Bank One. How long
0: before the HE went away and then Team Dynamics was just focused on higher
1: ed in totality and you didn't need the HE anymore? Uh, you know, I, I w- we were talking about this the other day, and you just get this sort of business amnesia and you just can't remember. Um, I think it was probably... Three years. couple years? Yeah, three years probably when we gobbled it all back up. Yeah, something like that. Okay, one final
0: question.
2: Awesome. Hey, Andrew, it's Lori. Uh, so Hi. two questions. First one's going to be really quick and the second one may be a bit longer, but they're both time-appropriate. First one is you made the comment about uh, the difference between historical valuations of professional services firms, mm-hmm. which have been in the 0.8 range to about the 1.5 mm-hmm. range. I think that's pretty typical mm-hmm. in terms of trailing 12 months of revenue. Mm-hmm. And you made the comment. I think when you're talking about uh, reoccurring revenue, you're talking about annual reoccurring revenue, correct? Yes. So people coming into you saying, "Hey, I've got 4 million and I want 65." are uh, trying to be somewhere north of 15? Uh, yeah. 15X is a yes. pretty rich multiple for a cloud, cloud. <laughs> Yeah. And so let, it's 30. Okay. All right. <laughs> I just want to, conf- yeah. to make sure the numbers flow. Yes, you're absolute, knew, that's exactly I, right. Before I knew how much I should shutter. Okay. So the next question, which I think is a little bit more interesting, is you made the decision uh, for your exit to be two equity firms. How did you choose them?
1: Um... They had been in contact with us. I had had lunch with one of the partners at a conference. So if we were at a big conference, I'd have lunch with some of those people who emailed. You know, they go to trade shows. If you go to trade shows, people sit down and say, I'm from so-and-so equity firm or equity, you know, group or venture capital fund. And I'd have lunch with them every once in a while. And this was one of the guys I had lunch with. And he just called back. He said, hey, we're kind of in a deal. He's like, well, can we have a look at it? And it turned out that they, they brought the two. They didn't want to do the deal themselves, so they brought two together, someone that they'd done deals with before in partnership. So these two firms, you know, we must have fit a certain profile where they, did, they came together to do the deal. I, I don't really know why they made that decision. Cool. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. We'll do
0: one more. Yeah, it's kind of dovetail on your question about you sold the two private Oh, it's Stuart. You told you sold to a private equity firm, and then you said after a certain period of time they flipped it to another private equity firm. Mm -hmm. So just give me your take on the differences between those private equity firms, what they're looking for, and you know, do they have different strategies? And that must have been interesting for you. Um,
1: I have learned a lot about different private equity funds. So the first two, one group had spun out of Insight Ventures, which is a really large PE fund, um, and they were very clinical. Their, you know, meetings with them were very structured, very about the numbers. The other firm was more of a country club type thing where it was all high net worth individuals, like the owner of Deer Valley Ski Area and these, like, massively wealthy individuals. And their meetings were, like, khakis and golf shirts and, hey, what's going on? That That's literally, like, tell us about sales. And the, the people in New York were just absolute, you know, animals with the numbers. So it's totally two different profiles. Um The new fund, they are very different. Um, They are clinicians, but they also have a huge professional development arm. They have a whole group of people doing continuing education and operations review. So any of our sales material, we can send it to them. They'll beat it up, give us feedback. They have a junior management training program called AMP where people are put through. I think they have to read 10 books a year, and every Friday they go through and talk about what they take away. And then they have seven on site meetings in California at this resort on the coast where everyone gets together and they do present, you know, you see presentations of executives of the portfolio company. So this one is uh, really, really interesting because they're pouring a ton of money into developing the talent. And teaching the executives and junior executives about different growth strategies. So, I mean, we, this has just been since November. So I'm still pretty new into it. But it, it's pretty interesting, actually. I, I, think, I think I like this model better. Yeah.
0: Please help me encourage
1: Andrew's wife not to drug him tomorrow morning. She's not going to drug me. She's going to put it in my bag and then call HR and be like, I think, I think he's got drugs. I know. I took bag. it to another level she's she just gonna she's
0: gonna it's gonna be in the it's gonna be in the yeah. cheerios
1: she, she might it's like you got
2: fired for poor behavior at work oh no
1: that's so sad
0: uh, please help me thank you, andrew for joining us today. Yeah. thanks for listening to this startup brian columbus event podcast we will be back next month with more entrepreneurial experiences and insights Thanks again to our lead partners, AWH and Rev1 Ventures. Visit startupgrind.com forward slash Columbus to see our future events and to see videos of past ones. Until next time, keep grinding.